We have a lot of birthday shoutouts for my Patreon members this month. It's a very popular month for birthdays, so I'll split them up between multiple episodes. I think it's pretty fitting because this is also my birth month and we are matching energies here. I want to first say happy birthday to Kathleen from March. And then our April birthdays, I want to say happy birthday to Jessica O, Denise, Eileen, Kara, Kristen, Quinn, and Nikki. I hope April, I hope the spring, I hope your birthday is amazing and you get to celebrate with the people you love. So happy birthday. When the police respond to a crime scene to three witnesses identifying the same man as the shooter, you would think the case was a slam dunk. But when that man has millions to spend on his defense, things start to become murky. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. I am recording this on probably the nicest and driest spring week we have had so far. So hopefully no one's roofing company or lawn service is going to show up to interrupt my recording session. It has been a noisy, noisy week in my usually quiet neighborhood. Today's episode was suggested by Russ, so thank you for sending it over. This is the case of Cullen Davis, which is, in my mind, an old-school true crime story that I feel like everyone knew about back when I was growing up, but maybe it has faded from our discussions a bit. It's a legally interesting case, and I'm pretty sure I could tell your age based on if you knew this case or not, at least before true crime podcasts began covering it. For the record, I don't remember a time when I didn't know who Colin Davis was. So let me start by telling you who Colin Davis was and is. Colin grew up in a wealthy oil family in Texas. His father, Ken, was a very strict father. He was rather tight-fisted considering the immense wealth they had that they could have spent. That might be because Ken had started the business in 1929 and built it from pretty much nothing. So he didn't want his sons to take advantage of something that was handed to them. An interesting thing about Ken's business model that will come up later was that he never took on shareholders. Everything remained privately owned. And when he drew up his will, he didn't evenly split things between his three children. They were basically going to inherit everything jointly. That's going to cause some issues later. In 1962, Colin married a woman named Sandra, and they had two sons together. Colin worked in the family business. He worked long days, as was expected by his father. But he was interested in spending and enjoying some of the money the business was bringing in, even though his father seemed to disapprove to some degree. Five years into his first marriage, 34-year-old Cullen met 26-year-old married mother of three, Priscilla Wilborn. Priscilla was a member of the same country club in Fort Worth that Cullen belonged to, and she played tennis with Cullen's wife. 
But Priscilla wasn't born into the country club lifestyle like Colin had been. She grew up poor, raised by a single mother after her father had disappeared on them. Priscilla felt like her past was exaggerated by the media to sound really more wrong side of the tracks than it was. Yes, things were tight, but they made do. She had an uncle who helped them out a lot, and Priscilla had a pretty ordinary childhood. She had the backyard swing set. She took piano lessons. She was on the student council. A very normal upbringing. This whole idea that Priscilla had just fallen off the turnip truck when she was swept away by Colin Davis wasn't really accurate, but it did play well in the media. At the age of 16, Priscilla did marry for the first time, which wasn't entirely uncommon in the 60s. Her daughter, Dee, was born, but the marriage barely made it a year. At 18, Priscilla remarried a 40-year-old car salesman named Jack Wilborn. She was attracted to how easygoing Jack was, and she really wanted a traditional family unit for her daughter, having grown up herself without it. At 19, Priscilla gave birth to their son, Jack Jr., and then at 22, she had their daughter, Andrea. When Priscilla and Cullen met in 1967, both of them were on the brink of divorce. And I don't mean the marriages were all but over. I mean that Sandra had already filed for divorce and Jack was on the verge of it. While they were both separated, they went out to dinner together and started discreetly seeing each other after that, except for a brief period when Cullen and Sandra had tried to reconcile. There was a bit of a different expectation back then than we have today. Now, I don't think we necessarily expect people to wait until their divorces are final to start dating again. But that was the expectation Colin and Priscilla adhered to, so they kept their relationship quiet. But Jack suspected something was going on, so he had a PI follow Priscilla. When she and Colin were together in a hotel room, Jack and his investigator burst into the room to take pictures of the two of them together. There are different versions of what they burst in on. One story was that Priscilla was nude, but she said she was actually sick with the flu, so what they burst in on was a whole lot of nothing. But whatever they did find in that hotel room was enough that Colin sat down with Jack to talk about it. Colin asked him, essentially, what's the end game? Jack had filed for divorce from Priscilla, so who really cares if she was seeing someone else? But Jack planned to use the incident in the divorce to show some sort of moral failing on Priscilla's part. Jack said he was going to use it to get custody of his two kids. That's what he wanted. He wanted Jack Jr. and Andrea. If Priscilla agreed to that, smearing her in court would be unnecessary. Priscilla agreed and the divorce was finalized. And that is what makes me wonder if there was a picture or two that Priscilla did not want admitted into evidence in court. She settled the custody issue in Jack's favor to avoid this making it into the record for a reason. Anyway, after both the divorces were final, the couple planned a small wedding 
for August 29th, 1968. And that morning, in the early hours, Colin's father, Ken, died. Instead of postponing the wedding for a few days, they just postponed it for a few hours and got married that same day. While I do believe fully that Colin was grieved by the loss of his father, we can't ignore that he was also in some ways freed by it. He was freed from the judgments and the control of his finances, and at the same time, he was marrying someone who lived a very different life than he had been used to. He was used to the more buttoned-up lifestyle, and Priscilla was flamboyant and flashy. She wore clothing that was more revealing than most would be comfortable in. She had sky-high platinum blonde hair. She had a breast enlargement. And she loved to take Cullen to honky-tonks and nightclubs more than to the country club. And Cullen loved it. He loved having Priscilla on his arm. He seemed to really love this more exciting, more free life. Rumors went around about the couple and what happened at parties that they threw at the mansion they built. The house was Cullen's dream home. It sat on more than 180 acres. It had five bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, and the master bedroom alone was 2,000 square feet. Two of the three houses I have owned in my adult life have been smaller than just that master bedroom. The house, the furnishings, and the artwork inside had a total worth of $6 million in the 1970s. So with Ken gone and Priscilla in his life, Colin had more freedom. He had more freedom to spend his money the way he wanted, or at least with less judgment. He lavished Priscilla with gifts of jewelry and furs and vacations and clothing. Only one of their combined five children lived at the mansion full-time, and that was Dee, Priscilla's oldest child. Her father was not in the picture, and Colin eventually adopted her. The two often butted heads, however. Colin was a much stricter parent than Dee had ever experienced before. She was 10 when her mother married Colin, so things were becoming more and more strained as she entered her teen years. According to what Dee saw from within the home, Colin seemed to really love Priscilla, at least at first. Priscilla, however, seemed devoted to Colin for the entirety of the marriage. Even after, according to Dee and Priscilla, physical abuse began. Colin has admitted to putting his hands on Priscilla once and hitting Dee once, but they both said it happened more than that. The incident with Dee that Colin admits to is really bad. They both agree that she was a teenager who didn't do something she was told to do. They got into an argument over it, which Colin characterized as Dee mouthing off. He hit her in the face, and according to Priscilla, it was hard enough to break Dee's nose. During this incident, Priscilla came into the room holding the family's new kitten. And without giving you any details, Colin killed the cat in a fit of rage. He has admitted to this. Now, I know my audience is full of animal lovers. You know who you are. You are all off the jury now. 
You are all prejudiced against Colin Davis for eternity. I get it. Priscilla and Dee are not the only ones to level such accusations against Colin. His first wife, Sandra, has also made accusations of physical violence. She said that he slapped her in public and did worse in private. In 1974, Priscilla filed for divorce from Colin. The initial catalyst for this depends on who you ask. One story is that Colin confessed to infidelity. Another is that Colin was the one who wanted the divorce because Priscilla was out partying all night and going out without him. And the other story is that Priscilla finally got sick of the abuse. Regardless, divorce was brought up between them prior to Priscilla filing. Then Priscilla woke up one morning and noticed her jewelry was missing. She called Colin at work and asked him where it was, and he said he had taken it with him. It was locked up in his office, and he said that's where it was going to stay. Priscilla told him she was coming to the office and she was going to tear it apart to get her things back. When she got there, Colin met her outside of his office with the jewelry in hand. Priscilla told him if he wanted a divorce, she was going to give him one. He said that he had been there before, and she said, no, you haven't. Priscilla immediately went and retained an attorney with the intent of getting half of everything. And when she filed for divorce, I don't think either side knew the battle they would be in. Their six-year marriage would take five years to end and include multiple criminal trials. Part of the war was that they had a prenup. Two days before their wedding, Priscilla signed this prenuptial agreement. However, she claimed she was lied to. She didn't know it was a prenup that excluded her from seeking any of the Davis family fortune. She was told it was some type of tax document. And even if it was binding, Priscilla's view of what was community property included a lot more money and property than Colin's estimation did. Priscilla said the community property wealth was upwards of $100 million. Basically, that was Colin's entire net worth, and she wanted half. Colin's side said that the bulk of his wealth was either excluded by the prenup or had been brought into the marriage and therefore was not community property. The community property portion was a fraction of his total wealth. And what Priscilla was entitled to was more like the hundreds of thousands at best, not 50 million. The judge assigned to the divorce case, Joe H. Idson Jr., was known to favor housewives in divorce proceedings. He saw the financial power imbalance during divorces when the wife hadn't been working and or the man controlled the family finances, which both were common in the 60s and 70s. So Judge Idson would often lean in the favor of the wife during the proceedings to even things out. It wasn't just alimony and child support, but he would also award lump sum payments to the wife while the case was still pending. These payments were not in addition to whatever community property 
would be coming her way later. These actually came out of that future split. All the judge was doing was giving the wife equal access to the marital funds during the divorce so that she could survive and pay legal fees while the legal process worked itself out. Otherwise, only the man would have access to these funds. For the average person, we're not talking a lot of money. But in a case where the potential future community property divide was in the millions, it meant Priscilla was getting pretty regular payments from Colin in addition to him paying maintenance and, of course, child support on D since he had adopted her. An even bigger blow than the payments, according to some, was that Cullen had to move into a hotel as he was barred from his dream mansion that he had built. The judge had given Priscilla temporary possession of the home and blocked Cullen from stepping foot on the property. And now it was Cullen's turn to point out the media reporting, leaning towards the sensational. Cullen said he loved this house, but he wasn't obsessed with it. He wasn't obsessed with possessing it like it was made out to be. He was confident he would win the house in the divorce. It was built during the marriage, but the land belonged to his family before that. So Priscilla being in the house was a temporary setback for him. This narrative about Cullen's obsession with the house plays into the next bit of reporting, which may or may not be sensationalized. It has elements of provable fact, and the rest may just be some filled-in blank spots. It seems factual enough to say that Priscilla went a little wild in that first year after Cullen moved out. In his dream home that he was barred from, she hosted huge parties. Drugs were certainly involved, and so were unsavory characters. For about six months, Priscilla had a known drug dealer and his motorcycle gang friends crashing at the place. Eventually, though, that did die down. Priscilla had these random people removed from the house, and she started a relationship with a bar owner named Stan Carr, someone who has been called a gentle giant. Colin, too, had found love again. He met a single mother named Karen and moved in with her, helping to raise her boys. One of them had some significant disabilities, including deafness, and Colin started learning about the boy's various conditions so that he could be hands-on with his care. Colin Davis practically became an expert in deaf education. And Colin and Karen were making plans for the future for when this divorce was finally over. However, Priscilla was living in the mansion with little incentive to settle anything. She had the house, she had regular payments coming in from Colin, and Colin was paying most of the household expenses. Her situation would have been sustainable forever. She was going to hold out for what she believed she was entitled to in the divorce. But Colin's situation was not so easy. It wasn't necessarily the money he was paying out, but the assets that got tied up. The judge ordered that any major expenditure be approved by the court. 
the judge was basically trying to stop Cullen from hiding his wealth somehow. Just let the court keep an eye on it so that things could keep moving smoothly. However, because of how the business and Cullen's personal wealth were structured, the court approval included the business's expenses. Day-to-day operations had a wrench thrown into them due to this court order. On top of that, one of Cullen's brothers, Bill, was suing Cullen and their other brother, Ken Jr. Bill felt his brothers weren't managing the company's finances well and that they were trying to rob him of his inheritance. Remember when I said Ken Sr. had left everything to his sons jointly rather than dividing it three ways? Here's a good reason not to do that. Because not only did it come with disputes over finances, when Priscilla and Cullen divorced, everyone else was dragged into the financial side of it. Here's what's interesting to me about this situation. While Priscilla and Cullen were battling in court and fed up with each other where money was concerned, they were cordial if they saw each other out and about. They would occasionally bump into each other while they were with their new partners. There were no public scenes. There wasn't even snubbing. They would say hello to each other, chit-chat a little bit, and then from the outside, Others wouldn't see this animosity that existed in the court documents and in the courtroom. The animosity that grew as Judge Edson's decisions kept going in Priscilla's favor. They had only been married for six years, yet Priscilla wanted half of everything Colin had, even though most of it was from before the marriage. And then Colin is getting pressure from his brother, Ken, because they have one brother suing, Priscilla has the business under court control, and Ken just wanted everything settled so they could move on. Delay after delay saw the divorce trial finally set for July 30th, 1976, two years after Priscilla filed. But when the day came, Priscilla's attorney asked for another delay. She had to have a medical procedure done That was causing stress and anxiety, and her doctor submitted a letter to the court saying that she was in no condition to continue. Judge Joe Idson took the motion and promised he would rule in a few days on if the trial would proceed or if things would be put off again. On August 2nd, 1976, Cullen went to work as usual, waiting on this decision from the judge and he had lunch with Dee. A lot of the conversation was about Dee's upcoming semester at college. It would be her first year after her high school graduation, and Cullen wanted her budget for how much she expected she would need, and she admitted that she hadn't written that up, even though he had asked for it before. He told Dee to go home, get the budget together, and don't leave the house until she finally got it done. Dee said, okay, she agreed with him, knowing that Colin wouldn't be around later to enforce it. She had plans to hang out with her boyfriend at his house, and then her friend Beverly Bass was going to sleep over at the mansion. Colin went back to work after lunch, 
and was in a meeting with his brother when he got the call that Judge Idson had made his ruling. He agreed to the continuance, and the divorce trial would not happen until after Priscilla recovered from her surgery. That was a frustrating enough setback, but it got worse. The judge also raised her temporary alimony from $3,500 to $5,000 a month. He gave her an additional $24,000 for household expenses and $25,000 for legal fees. Some of the household expenses approved were things like a grocery bill and a $3,600 bill at Neiman Marcus, which is a luxury department store. So Cullen was paying support and he was paying expenses, which likely would not have happened this way with another judge because support is often paid in order to cover expenses. You don't get both. To the average person, over 50K in a lump sum and then 5,000 a month in mid-1970s money would be outside our ability to pay. But it wasn't a huge sum to Cullen, who had more money than most of us will spend in a lifetime. If this ruling upset Cullen Davis, I don't think it would have been about the money. I think he would have just been angry about losing yet another ruling. Again and again, for two years, the judge kept giving Priscilla what she wanted. But from what has been reported, Ken, Cullen's brother, was actually a bit more upset than Cullen was over the continuance. Ken was frustrated that this meant the business still had to go through the courts just to carry out transactions for another few months. After getting this news, 43-year-old Cullen Davis got back to work. He told Karen he would not be home for dinner, and he worked until about 7.50. At that point, he left his downtown office. Cullen claimed he ate dinner alone, and then he went to a movie before heading back to his house. No one has ever come forward to say they saw Cullen at the dinner or at the movie. Where Colin Davis was after 7.50 p.m. would be the biggest question of his life. Back at the mansion on August 2nd, 1976, 35-year-old Priscilla Davis and 31-year-old Stan Farr left the house around 9 p.m. to head out to a late dinner with friends. Priscilla's 18-year-old daughter, Dee Davis, was over at her boyfriend's house, so this left 12-year-old Andrea Wilborn home alone. Andrea had been a sensitive little girl, and Cullen's temper scared her. So during the marriage, she didn't like to be at her mother's house any more than the usual visits. But Cullen wasn't living there anymore, so she was able to make herself more at home, though she still lived with her father most of the time. Andrea wasn't supposed to be there that night. She had just spent some of her summer vacation at her grandmother's house. Her father, Jack, was going to drive down to Houston to pick her up, but something came up and Dee drove down there instead. It was decided that she would just sleep over at the mansion so that they had a little bit more time with her before she went back to Jack's house. When Priscilla left the home, she set the alarm and she locked the door. She and Stan were out for a few hours, returning around midnight. They found both the alarm disarmed and 
the front door unlocked. But Priscilla wasn't immediately concerned. She knew Dee was coming home and that Dee's friend Beverly was coming over. Maybe they forgot to set the alarm after they arrived and they went to bed without checking it. It wouldn't be the first time teenagers forgot something like this. Stan headed up the stairs to go to the bedroom while Priscilla walked into the kitchen to turn off the lights that had been left on. She said she saw a blood smear that looked like a palm print on the door to the basement. It stopped her in her tracks. As Priscilla processed what she was seeing, she yelled for Stan. Then a figure stepped out from the laundry room, said hi, and then shot Priscilla in the chest. Stan came running, and he saw the man holding the gun. Priscilla yelled, according to her, run Stan, it's Colin. Stan closed the door between him and the shooter. The gunman fired through the door, hitting Stan. The man then opened the door, and the two were in a physical fight. The gun was fired again, and again, Stan was hit. He fell to the floor, and the man stood over him and shot him two more times. With Priscilla on the ground, injured already, Stan Farr died. The killer then decided to try to drag Stan's body. For what reason? It's not really clear. But he was dragged in the direction of the basement, so perhaps the ultimate plan here was to hide the bodies down there. Stan was six foot nine, so dragging his body was not an easy feat. As the gunman struggled to do this, Priscilla, who was injured but alive, took her chance to run. She made it out to the patio where the gunman caught up to her. He grabbed her under her arms and started to pull her back into the house. Priscilla said this man was Cullen, so she started pleading with him, saying how he's the only man she ever loved and that sort of thing. He kept saying, come on, come on, as he pulled her back inside. Once inside, the killer left Priscilla again on the floor while he went back to trying to drag Stan's body. So we have to ask the question, why didn't he shoot her again when he realized she was alive? It's possible that he thought she was near enough to death already. But she wasn't. By some miracle, the gunshot wound to Priscilla's chest had missed her vital organs. With the man distracted again, the man she claimed was Colin, Priscilla snuck back outside and hid in the bushes where she heard a woman's voice approaching the house. She was terrified, thinking this was Dee walking right up to the killer, completely unaware. But the man heard the voice too and came outside, so Priscilla stayed hidden while she had to make a split-second decision of what to do. Priscilla figured that her best bet to save anybody was to run for help, and that's what she did. There were two things on her mind. One, there was blood on the door before she even knew the gunman was in the house and before she or Stan were injured. So that led to her second thought. Where was Andrea? 
Priscilla got to the neighbor's house where she banged on the door. The couple inside called out and asked what she wanted. Remember, this is between midnight and 1 a.m., so very late and very alarming to have someone who's nearly hysterical banging on your door. Priscilla explained who she was. She said she lived up at the big house and that Colin Davis was up there with a gun shooting everyone. While the couple in the house did call for police and ambulance, they wouldn't open the door. So Priscilla sat out there with a gunshot wound waiting for help and worried about Andrea and Dee. But it wasn't actually Dee's voice she had heard. Dee had made a last-minute decision to just stay at her boyfriend's house for the night. The voice Priscilla heard was Beverly Bass. Beverly had arrived with her boyfriend, Gus Bubba Gavril. Bubba was walking Beverly to the door when they heard a woman say, I love you, I've always loved you, and a man say, come on, come on. There was a low wall blocking them from seeing clearly, but Bubba was tall enough to see over and see that it was a man and a woman. Then they saw the man come back out of the house, and Beverly said her first thought was that he was stealing something. They asked him what he was doing, and he said something like, they're around here, follow me. Priscilla entertained at the mansion often enough that it wouldn't be out of the question for you to show up after midnight and someone would be there. So thinking this was just a guest, they followed him. According to Bubba and Beverly, they did not see Priscilla either in the bushes or making a break for it. They didn't know where she was. They followed the man until they got outside of a room that had a light on. The man walked in front of the window and Beverly got her first good look at him. She said, according to both her and Bubba, it's Colin. When she said that, the man turned around and fired a shot. It hit Bubba in the stomach. Bubba, not able to feel his legs, dropped to the ground. The man stood over him, but he didn't fire again. The gun was empty. Beverly was a runner, and she put that to good use. She took off. She hurtled over a wall and kept going. The man chased her for a while, but he was no match for her. She made it out to the road where she flagged someone down. He drove her to a nearby convenience store, and they called the police. When she got to the store, and again, when the police came, Beverly identified the shooter as Cullen Davis. Meanwhile, as the shooter was chasing Beverly down, Bubba was trying to get into the house to get to the phone to call for help. He couldn't move his legs, though. The bullet had gone through his abdomen and lodged in his spine. He had to drag himself to the door, and then he found it locked. He heard the gunman coming back, so he played dead, and it worked. The shooter reloaded the gun, but he didn't shoot Bubba. He shot into a glass panel, reached in to unlock the door, and went inside. Soon after, the gunman came back out, looked at Bubba lying there, and said, oh my God, and then he left the scene. Whether he was there to target Priscilla or Stan or both, he had clearly lost control. 
Priscilla, who could identify him, was gone, and he had just killed an innocent 20-year-old who just happened to show up. Except he was wrong in his thinking that he killed Bubba. After the shooter was gone, Bubba dragged himself through the now-unlocked door and all the way to the phone, but he found it was either unplugged or cut. When the police arrived, they found him by the phone, still alive but gravely injured. In the kitchen, they found Stan Farr dead on the floor. The house was large, 20 rooms, so it took a while to clear the main floors before they headed to the basement. It was down in the basement utility room that they found 12-year-old Andrea dead from a single gunshot wound to the chest. There were no defensive wounds or signs of a struggle. The blood evidence indicated Andrea had been shot in the spot where she was found and she fell face down. But then the killer rolled her over, possibly to see if she was dead. So basically, someone had gotten Andrea to disable the alarm, unlock and open the door late at night, and then comply with going down to the basement. Getting her to the basement was probably not that hard thanks to that gun. Andrea had been on the phone at 10.30 p.m., so the murder happened between then and when Priscilla and Stan returned after midnight. As far as the responding officers were concerned, there wasn't a lot of speculation needed here as to who Andrea would open the door to. There were three living witnesses, and all three said that man was Colin Davis. The why and the how would have to come later. According to Colin's brother, Ken, he heard about the shootings and called Colin at 4 a.m. Colin was home with Karen, and he answered the phone. Ken asked Colin if he knew about the shootings at the mansion, and Colin said he didn't, he hadn't heard. And then he asked who was shot. Ken told him that it was a man named Stan Farr and that a little girl had been killed. He also said Priscilla was in the hospital. He didn't know about Bubba. Cullen asked who shot them, and Ken said he didn't know, but that the police were looking for Cullen. Ken then asked him what was he going to do, and Cullen said, I guess I'll go back to bed. Ken was more upset and alarmed than Cullen seemed to be. Colin did not go back to bed because the phone soon rang again and it was the police. They wanted him to come out of the house. They allowed him to get dressed first and when he stepped outside, they took him into custody without even putting handcuffs on him first, which would have been the usual procedure. Then 16 hours after the murders, charged with a double homicide, Colin Davis was back home, having paid his bond in full. This arrest and rapid release should have told everyone that this was going to be a different sort of case. They let him get dressed before taking him into custody. They didn't handcuff him, and he was given a bond well within his ability to pay. He paid the full thing. He didn't put up any property. He didn't leverage anything. He didn't have to liquidate any assets. He paid with cashier's checks. This was going to be a high-profile, rich person's version of justice. So let's get into what the case was. We're going to start with the physical evidence. It'll be quick. There was none. Even that palm print in blood, the state and the defense both tried to match it. 
and according to the state, it turned out to not be what it appeared to be at first. It was a blood smear, but the print lifted was actually a latent print that was under the blood. It belonged to the family's housekeeper. The state had hoped it would match Cullen, and the defense hoped it would match no one so they could use it as reasonable doubt. But in the end, it helped no one. It was determined the same gun was used in all the shootings at the mansion that night, but it was never found, and it was never traced back to anyone. Cullen's prints were not in the house, though Priscilla said it looked like he had plastic bags covering his hands. There was really nothing that tied Cullen to that crime scene physically. They had the three witnesses, however, who identified him, and Cullen did not have an alibi. His girlfriend Karen said that she had taken a sleeping pill and went to bed early, so she didn't know what time he came home. From the time he left work until his brother called after the murders, Cullen Davis had no verifiable alibi. So looking at this case, the DA had two big decisions to make. One was that, at the time, Texas only allowed one murder case to be pursued, even if the cases were connected. So they had to choose whether to try Colin for Andrea's murder or Stan's. They had an eyewitness who saw Stan get shot and fight with the assailant and die right there on the floor. They didn't have that same type of eyewitness for Andrea's murder, but they could link the killings due to the gun. They felt they had the best chance prosecuting the murder of an innocent child. They knew Cullen would hire the best defense he could buy, which he did when he hired Richard Racehorse Haynes. So the state was going to take any advantage they could get, even if it was just having a more sympathetic victim. The second decision they had to make was whether to try this as a capital murder or not. Capital murder meaning eligible for the death penalty. One factor in this was bond. Cullen would be held pending trial if it was a capital murder charge, rather than stay free as he currently was, and they were worried he would flee. He certainly had the means to do so. But they needed grounds to pursue the death penalty. Not every murder is death penalty eligible, not even in a relatively pro-death penalty state like Texas. Quick history lesson. There was a moratorium on the death penalty in the United States that started in 1972. The U.S. Supreme Court said that the death penalty itself was not unconstitutional, but that it was being applied inconsistently and that the application of the death penalty was unconstitutional. It meant in order for states to have the death penalty, they had to come up with some hard and fast guidelines. In 1976, the moratorium ended when those guidelines were put into place in 37 states, Texas being one of them the Texas legislature had come up with aggravating factors that would make a case eligible for the death penalty. One of those was if the murder happened during the commission of a burglary. Burglary is the unlawful entry into a building in order to commit a crime. It does not have to be, but often does involve theft. And that's what the legislature had in mind when this law went into place a murder that happens during a robbery. 
But the DA wanted to say that Cullen entering the mansion was an unlawful entry in order to commit the crime of murder, and therefore it is a capital murder case. But was Cullen's alleged entry into the house unlawful? He owned the home. It was tied up in a divorce case, but he was not criminally barred from being there. The order to keep him off the property was from a civil court. So the DA's office justified it by saying that in spite of owning the home, Cullen didn't have the right to possession of the property, therefore it was a break-in, therefore it was an aggravating circumstance. This meant they could rearrest him and hold him without bail. And on the morning of August 20th, 1976, a state investigator who was keeping an eye on Cullen saw him head toward the airfield the airfield where Cullen's private plane was, and the authorities decided it was time to move in before Cullen took off. Cullen said he was headed to Houston for the day for business. He didn't have any luggage with him, and he didn't even have his passport. So while Cullen could have changed the plane's flight path while they were in the air and land in some small rural airstrip somewhere, It really did look like he was just heading to Houston for the day. But Cullen was rearrested before the flight took off and held without bail on capital murder charges. Cullen did appeal this to try to get the aggravating factor tossed out, but he lost. Cullen ended up sitting in jail until his trial. The first trial was supposed to start in April 1977, but before jury selection was even finished, a mistrial was declared. They had seated eight jurors, which was a real feat because it was hard to find anyone in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who hadn't already made up their minds on this case. The eight jurors were sequestered while jury selection continued for the final four-plus alternates. One of the first jurors seated had a family emergency in this time period. Her father was very ill, and she was given permission to visit him in Chicago. Someone reported to the court that while this juror was in Chicago, she made several unauthorized phone calls, and in one of those calls, she expressed views that Colin Davis was guilty. Because jury selection had already started, the case had officially begun, and this meant a mistrial. They couldn't just excuse her from the case and continue choosing jurors. The defense then wanted to move the trial to another jurisdiction. There was some back and forth on this, and it was eventually granted. The case was moved to Amarillo, Texas, which is about five hours from Fort Worth. But getting an unbiased jury there was difficult in the opposite direction. The Davis family business had a lot of contacts in the town. The family was well-liked and well-respected in Amarillo. It was also a town that respected wealth, and the common refrain in op-eds and just coffee shop talk about the case was essentially, 
why would a man as wealthy as Colin Davis murder a child over relative peanuts? He had everything. Why would he have done this? But in spite of the difficulties finding an open-minded jury in Amarillo, they did manage to find it in August 1977. The bulk of the state's case was going to be the three eyewitnesses. But they did have to come up with a motive. The state isn't required to prove motive, but when Colin Davis had Racehorse Haynes on his side, they knew that he would use the no-motive argument alone to raise reasonable doubt. And the idea of there being no motive had already been in the media. It may seem pretty obvious what the motive for shooting Priscilla was, either the money or the loss of control or losing in court constantly. It's not hard to say that it wasn't a coincidence that the day he most recently lost in court was the same day Priscilla was shot. Maybe killing Stan could even be drawn into this as necessary since he was a physical threat. But why Andrea? Even Priscilla had to admit that Andrea was Colin's favorite. She was a sweet and kind and gentle girl who never pushed Colin's buttons the way Dee did. At first, I thought he must not have known she was there since she did live with her father. But then I read that Dee remembered having mentioned that Andrea was at the house when she had a lunch with Colin hours before the murders. Colin very likely knew Andrea was going to be there, so why not wait until a time when she wouldn't be? Unless Colin was relying on her to be willing to let him into the house, which is possible. Another issue with the motive focusing on Priscilla was that Priscilla was left alive. Even after the gunman knew she was alive, he still focused on moving Stan's body. Stan had been shot four times. There was no jealousy of Stan or the relationship coming from Cullen. From all reports, both Priscilla and Cullen had moved on in that sense. So the state argued that the reason Stan was shot four times was because he had to be. He was a big guy, and he was a real physical risk to the shooter. And Priscilla being left alive was only through a bit of a miracle. She was shot in a very similar location as Andrea. However, that bullet missed her vital organs. They theorized that Cullen shot her and thought she was dead or at least dying. When he realized she wasn't, he planned to bring her to the basement to show her Andrea's body to hurt her even more in her final moments. So while the circumstances of who was shot and killed don't seem to fit the state's motive, they did wiggle it into some sort of reasonable explanation. But does any of that matter when they had three witnesses? I've mentioned that, right? Three witnesses. Three witnesses who said, Colin did it. So did any of these other details matter all that much? Colin would certainly say, yes, they did matter because he didn't do it. And to get over the hurdle of these three eyewitnesses, the defense would have to point out every one of these other inconsistencies 
and there were few better to do this than Racehorse Haynes. Richard Racehorse Haynes once said his defense strategy is similar in various cases. He used a hypothetical scenario to explain it. Let's say you sue his client because their dog bit you. First, Racehorse will argue that the dog doesn't bite. Also, the dog was tied up all night. Third, you didn't really get bit. And fourth, his client doesn't even own a dog. Deny and deflect, in other words. Cullen's defense was, this wasn't him. The witnesses were lying. Cullen's girlfriend, Karen, testified at trial that she woke up in the middle of the night and she saw him sleeping next to her. Even though she had twice before said the complete opposite, that she never woke up that night and didn't see him, she said it was a mistake and she forgot to mention that one time that she did wake up right about the time of the murders to see Cullen sleeping in bed. So basically, Karen's job was to say the dog was tied up at the time of the crime. I won't say anyone believed her, and I don't think Racehorse Haynes expected anyone to. But this was just there to buoy the main part of the defense, that the witnesses were lying. Even though Beverly and Priscilla had separately told people within minutes of the shooting that it was Colin, the argument was they conspired against him. The defense claimed that Priscilla, shot in the chest and actively bleeding with a gunman nearby, passed Beverly in the yard as she ran for help. In a matter of seconds, Priscilla convinced Beverly to lie about who the man was. If she said it was Cullen, Priscilla would get him locked up for life and win everything in the divorce. And Beverly also had to mention that their paths did not cross that night, that she didn't see Priscilla, so no one would clue in to the fact that they came up with this scheme. Oh, and also, as Bubba lays on the ground, paralyzed, please pass this message on to him. That's the defense. To convince everyone Priscilla was lying, Racehorse Haynes put her on trial during a grueling 11-day cross-examination. Every detail of every wild indiscretion Priscilla ever had in her past was gone over. And Priscilla, at points, outright lied about some of it in her denials, her denials of things like drug use. Some of it you can say, Maybe she wasn't remembering the way it was being presented because he had really dug into her past, got stories from people from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years before. So she may honestly not have remembered everything, but some of it was deflection and lying. Priscilla would have been better off by answering, yes, she did whatever this terrible, immoral thing was that was being presented to her, but it was years ago and it didn't matter. It was the lying about it that added to her credibility issues. The point was to paint Priscilla as so amoral that she would lie about who killed her own child and let that person get away with it just so she could get Colin's money. 
Discrediting Priscilla was step one. To discredit Beverly, they said she owed Priscilla money and had an incentive to go along with the scheme due to the debt. And to discredit Bubba, they found someone to testify that he overheard Bubba tell his father that he didn't know who shot him, and his father said he needed to say that it was Cullen. For an alternative suspect, take your pick. The defense put up the idea that Stan was possibly the target. The killer didn't know that Andrea was in the house when he went there that night, and he killed her because she was a witness. He may also not have realized she was a child because though she was 12, she was five foot seven. It would also explain why Stan died and Priscilla didn't if he was the target. Stan's partner at the bar he owned was involved in the drug world, and that could have been a motive. Or Priscilla was the target, and it was any one of these seedy people in her past. The police would know who the killer was, but they didn't bother to do a decent investigation, according to Racehorse Haynes. He picked apart every detail of the police investigation, the processing of the crime scene, and the handling of the evidence. The police were so sure they had their man that they let the evidence that would prove it was someone else slip through their fingers. And yes, it was a huge coincidence that this shooting happened after Cullen had another setback in court in the divorce case. In spite of these three eyewitnesses agreeing on the identity of the killer, the defense produced a case of reasonable doubt that hinged on a wounded Priscilla and Beverly having a little chat on the lawn while a gunman stood nearby waiting for them to run for help. That was their case, and it worked. After two days of deliberation, the Amarillo jurors returned a verdict of not guilty. This decision stunned Priscilla. It hurt her. They didn't believe her. They believed that she would let her daughter's killer go free in order to set Cullen up, in order to get money. They believed that was who she was as a person. And that is, to this day, the person Cullen Davis says Priscilla is. Cullen has sat for a number of interviews over the years since his trial, and he continues to deny involvement. He doesn't know who the killer was, but he does know Priscilla set him up. Priscilla had a really hard time processing how little of the trial was about Andrea and how much it became about gossip surrounding her. In her own interviews over the years, she would repeat that again and again. Stan's murder and Andrea's murder were always made about her and Cullen and not them, not the victims. Years later, it came out that Cullen was paying slash bribing one of the state's investigators for information on trial strategy and what was coming up next. Though Racehorse Haynes adamantly denied that he knew anything about it. And if he didn't know about it, he couldn't have used that information for any type of advantage in court. But if he didn't know about it and wasn't using the information, why was Cullen paying the investigator for the information? 
My BS meter has gone off a few times while researching this case, and it's dinging right now. So after the verdict, as though a child had not been murdered, Cullen threw a party, and at least one juror showed up to it. She was quoted as saying that rich men don't kill people, they hire people to do it. I'm not sure if she knew the foreshadowing there because it wasn't long before Cullen was accused of doing exactly that. Though some expected the next trial of Cullen Davis to be for Stan's murder, the state had decided not to pursue it. They had literally all of the same evidence. It didn't work once, so they had no reason to believe they could win the case in a do-over with a different victim. But then a man named David McCrory called the FBI. David's name popped up frequently in Colin and Priscilla's lives. He strangely weaves through almost all of the backstory. For instance, he was at the dinner Priscilla and Stan went to on the night of the murders. And then before the trial, David made a statement first to the defense and then made a contradictory one to the state. He is part of the reason the case ended up being moved to Amarillo. David McCrory is a person who seems constantly present, but the type of person who drops out of retellings of this case, unless you're writing a 400-page book and have time to include every little thing. He wouldn't have even come up in this episode except for one thing, his call to the FBI. It made him a central figure in the second trial of Colin Davis. David said that Cullen, who was his close friend, had asked him to hire a hitman to start taking people out. It was after Andrea's murder trial, so some of the people were witnesses from the case, like Bubba, Beverly, and Priscilla, people who might testify against him if the state did take him to trial for Stan's murder. There were also wrongful death suits already filed by the families of Stan and Andrea, and their testimony would be hurtful to him in those cases. Proving wrongful death is a lower bar than a criminal charge, so even though Colin was found not guilty at trial, he could be held responsible in a civil court. But the first person Colin wanted killed was Judge Joe Idson, the man presiding over the divorce. With Priscilla alive and Colin not in jail, they were back to their divorce battle. I almost forgot about it too. David went to the FBI saying that Colin wanted these hits done and he believed Colin was serious. He also said Colin confessed to him that he did kill Stan and Andrea. So the FBI set up a sting where David wore a wire while talking to Colin. They wanted to know that David's information was accurate. While David did get Colin to confirm that he wanted the hit on the judge carried out, he never did get him to confess to killing anyone on the wire. So it's just David's word that Colin said this, and Colin, of course, has denied it. After getting confirmation that Cullen was, in fact, looking to carry out a contract killing, the FBI set up a more elaborate scenario. They listened and videotaped a meeting between David and Cullen where David showed him a picture of the judge, 
dead in the trunk of a car. Of course, these were staged photos that Judge Idson had posed for. When Cullen saw this picture of the judge dead in a trunk, he gave David $25,000 and confirmed that he wanted the others killed. After Cullen gave David the money, he drove off and stopped at a payphone. That's when the FBI moved in and arrested him. Cullen hired Racehorse Haynes again, and this time he paid him $2 million for his defense. With video and audio evidence, not just eyewitnesses who could be painted as liars, it seemed a much harder case to win. And Cullen was going with the same basic defense he used before. He was set up. Again. Cullen testified that this was some sort of double, maybe triple cross. He said that in a conversation that was, of course, not recorded, David told him that Priscilla had hired a hitman to take him out. But they knew Cullen had a lot of money, so he would not do it if Cullen would pay more than Priscilla offered. However, David said they needed Cullen to incriminate himself on tape so that they had insurance in case he ever tried to turn on them. That sounds pretty ridiculous, especially for a savvy businessman, not a naive, hapless victim here, Cullen Davis. He could have just gone to the authorities at this point and said, this man is trying to extort me, but instead he did what David told him to do. Cullen had an explanation for that as well. He said he got a call from an FBI agent the agent told Cullen that the FBI was aware that David was trying to extort this money out of him, and they were in the process of investigating it. He told Cullen to go along with whatever David said so that they could record the conversation to collect more evidence against him. Cullen only realized later that it must not have been a real FBI agent on the phone and that this was a setup by David and or Priscilla to get him arrested. Again. But why, if Cullen thought he was working with the FBI, did he not mention that to the FBI when they arrested him? Why didn't he say, wait, 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 I was working with you guys. This is the agent's name. Call him. Clear this up. Why does this, oh, I thought I was working with the FBI story, not come into existence until trial. There's no real answer for that. The jury in this case did deliberate for six days before they said they were hopelessly deadlocked. It was eight to four in favor of conviction. The state decided to retry Cullen. And the defense didn't change strategies so much as they enhanced the case they had presented the first time. For this next trial, Racehorse Haynes hired a linguistics expert who testified that the tapes weren't as incriminating as they sounded. He said they were in line with what Cullen said. David was the one who kept bringing up the hits, and Cullen would just sort of go along with it, almost with a hesitancy. And in November 1979, another jury bought the defense that Racehorse Haynes had come up with. They found Cullen not guilty for a second time. A jury believed Cullen was the victim of a setup. When the not guilty verdict came in, 
the judge actually cursed from the bench. And Colin Davis walked out of court, once again a free man. Even Racehorse Haynes, in interviews later on, had to admit that if Colin Davis was not a wealthy man, he very well could have spent the rest of his life in prison. Colin Davis got the rigorous defense he could fund. As for the divorce, this judge who had to pose for staged photos of his own murder obviously could not continue to preside over the case without bias, so he stepped aside and a new judge came on. This judge was much more favorable to Cullen. He determined that the mansion was built during the marriage, however, the land had belonged to the Davis family before that. So Priscilla was given 30 days to vacate the home and Cullen moved back in. Instead of holding out for the $50 million that Priscilla wanted, she eventually settled for $3.5 million. By that point, she had lost so much that she just wanted to be free from it. Colin walked away with the mansion and the vast majority of his wealth. He married Karen and adopted her two sons. And in the late 70s, early 80s, Cullen and Karen Davis made headlines once again for a very different reason than they ever had before. They had converted to evangelical Christianity and turned their lives over to God. In the 1980s, the oil bust forced the Davis family business to go under, and Cullen lost almost everything. He had to even file for personal bankruptcy with debts totaling $200 million. Due to Texas bankruptcy laws, he was allowed to keep his home and his vehicle in his bankruptcy, but he did eventually sell the mansion. Cullen said that losing his fortune was a blessing from God because he needed to be humbled. He and his wife Karen remained married until her death in 2016. Cullen worked sales-type jobs until he retired and turned his focus to work with right-wing political think tanks. Priscilla Davis quickly burned through her settlement money and moved into a modest apartment. In the interviews she would give over the years, she was clear on three things. Cullen was guilty, Andrea was forgotten by the media, and she, Priscilla, had been turned into a caricature. People talked about the wild parties, but not the Girl Scout troop she led. They talked about her skimpy outfits, but not her three-days-a-week volunteer position at the hospital. But really, what I got that Priscilla really wanted people to know was that she never, ever got over Andrea's death. Priscilla died in 2001. Beverly Bass stayed at Bubba's side through his recovery, though he never regained full use of his legs. The two were married for 33 years until his death in 2018. As for the wrongful death suits, only one was resolved against Cullen Davis, and that was a settlement with the children of Stan Farr. A settlement that has not been paid and that Cullen has said he has no intention of paying. He said then, he continues to say now, at the age of 87, that he is innocent 
of these murders. <laughs> 